Hello and welcome to a two-part podcast produced to accompany the exhibition Language is a River, curated by Hannah Matthews and Melissa Ratliff and presented at the Monash University Museum of Art, MAMA, from 27 November 2021 to the 15th of January 2022. The exhibition featured work by Akhil Ahamet, Archie Barry, Charlotte Proger, Sarah Rodigari, Shenzhen and Wuzhang. In this episode, we'll hear from artist Akhila Hamet and also Ellen van Nierven, whose four poems are included in the accompanying exhibition publication. The publication and exhibition explore the wide territory between language as an indispensable but neutral system of communication and language as a means for rehearsing, performing and producing identity and power. Language as a river is both a proposition and analogy under which the personal, political and poetic aspects of narrative and meaning making can be considered. My name is Kate Barber and the podcast commences with a conversation between New South Wales-based artist Akhil Ahamet and myself as Akhil introduces their two works in the exhibition, Muscular Dreams and So the Spaces Between Us Can Stay Soft, both single-channel video installations with sound. Akhil is a New South Wales-based artist who works across video, sound installation, performance and gaming to consider contemporary experience, particularly its online and consumer forms. Among their research influences, they draw especially on the use of Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, ASMR, in online spaces as a self-administered therapeutic tool, translating its restorative effects into intimate audio experiences in the spaces of the gallery. We close the podcast with Mianjin, Brisbane-based writer, editor, and educator, Ellen Van Nierven, reading their poem, The Only Black Queer in the World, from the collection Throat, published by University of Queensland Press in 2020. And now, let's hear from Akhil. So welcome, Akhil. Thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your work in the recent MAMA exhibition, Language is a River. The exhibition, curated by... Hannah Matthews and Mel Ratliff features two of your works, Muscular Dreams from 2016 and So the Spaces Between Us Can Stay Soft from 2018. Uh, When you enter the Mama Foyer, you're greeted by a curved video screen that's mounted vertically on a black photographic pole. The pole rests atop a black Air Jordan sneaker balanced on a moulded concrete form. And on the screen, an improbably elongated arm appears to wave at you before it retracts from view. As you approach, you stand under a parabolic speaker and hear a very faintly whispered narration. Bill Murray doesn't play defense, even though he clearly knows how to. He points out the orange monster and whispers in Daffy's ear. Daffy puts a helmet on. It's got check time. He loads up and runs headfirst into the belly of the orange monster. The only way we can get the ball back is through force. He coughs it up and the other monsters look on in shock as the ball bounces slowly across the court. As Bill Murray picks the ball up, I see all of the hopes of the little pig in its reflection on the gleaming painted floorboards. He takes a few dribbles before passing it behind his back to me. I size up the defence, spin and cross over. Eight seconds left. I pass the ball to Lola. She crosses behind her back and then back through her legs. Daffy calls out, desperate for attention. She passes it, but the purple monster slams him out of the way. But 
Boggs jumps up just in time, snatches the pole out of the air, and passes it back to Bill Murray. He fakes the pass left, and trips the lanky blue monster, getting the ball away to me at the top of the three-point line. I drive up the middle of the court, straight at the orange monster that's charging with its arms wide open. As it dives at me, I step on the monster's head, and then on its butt. Probably took five steps, but maybe nobody saw. The chorus calls out as I float above the court amongst the stadium lights. Tom's bang, and the bar section wails as the green and purple monsters jump up and grab me around the waist. As I continue floating, time stretches like my hand, and I begin to feel the accumulated weight of every decision I've ever made. Would I be here without a head to step off? Even with my foot pressed against your throat, I hope the spaces between us can stay soft. For those listeners who perhaps didn't have an opportunity to visit the exhibition in person, I hoped, Akil, that you could please introduce Muscular Dreams and in particular make mention of the narrated sound component for us. Yeah, so that work, Muscular Dreams, takes its title from a line in Franz Fanon's book, uh, The Wretched of the Earth. The line, Muscular Dreams, is is a direct line from there, but it, it kind of refers to this passage, The Dreams of the Colonised. Yeah, Franz Fanon was trained as a psychoanalyst. He wrote that book doing his work as a part of the Algerian anti-colonial resistance. Yeah, he was, so he was kind of talking about the dreams of the, of the colonizers and he was talking about what he calls muscular dreams, which are these dreams of vitality and like physical freedom. I guess at the t- I mean, not just at the time, but I guess like throughout my life, sneakers have been like a really big part of my life. I was thinking that passage really resonated with me about the ways that shoes marketed the the kind of dreams that they're that they're selling not just the dreams but like they actually enable this kind of physical ability and this effect they offer this appendage to the body that allows for this uh, feeling of freedom and vitality the work kind of interrogated like my own relation to those things what the feeling of those shoes are on my body like what appeals to them like why like i physically like wearing them but then yeah I guess the reference is maybe trying to dig into like where those desires come from and I guess that resonance was really interesting. Could you talk particularly to the narrated sound component because it's a really I mean it is a very kind of personal space that you create with that as the parabolic speaker can only really accommodate one person listening quite intimately and they have to really concentrate in that space to to hear, but it's a very particular narration. I wonder if you could talk to that and the relationship to the Air Jordans. Yeah, totally. Okay, so the narration, it's like a first-person narration. I guess it's maybe not immediately obvious when when you're listening to it because it is this first-person narration. It kind of retells the, the final... Not the final scene, but like the... Sorry, the final scene of the last game in Space Jam. So I guess like part part of the reason for Space Jam's place in there is obviously like Michael Jordan is like such a big part of the spectre of why those shoes are important, like globally, culturally, like why Nike is so successful as a company. And also Space Jam was like one of the like, you know, two VHS tapes that I had when I was a kid. So I've seen it like a million times and can still actually like remember every single word. 
So, um, yeah, so that, there's this scene that's narrated in that, which is the, um, yeah, it's like this kind of like last ditch effort to to win the game after they've been like pretty comprehensively beaten up to that point. Yeah, it's like their like last moment of the comeback and it's like the very last moments of the game. So it's like kind of narrating that first person and then towards the end of it, it kind of gets stuck in the suspended moment, which matches the visual. So the, the visual on the screen is of the elongated arm, which is waving, but it kind of mirrors what happens in the scene as Michael Jordan flies across the court in those like last few seconds of the game. And so the narration flips from this first person narration of the events of the thing to this in- interior reflection. Uh, that's the part that kind of slips out of the the narrative that was set aside in Base Jam and it goes back to like the origins of the, the beginning point of the work, which is interrogating fantasies of power and and strength. In Muscular Dreams, there is a distinct juncture as the narration does suddenly veer from that scene from Space Jam into a far more intimate and personal tone and the final line that we hear in the narration is so the spaces between us can stay soft which is also the title of your second work in the exhibition from 2018 and as we head into the darkened central corridor or the spine of the mama galleries we encounter this work could you talk to us a little bit about your second work in the exhibition and what the relationship is between those two and why you've used that the final line in the narration as the title for that work i mean the line that made its way into the title is the obvious segue but like the line that immediately precedes it is even with my foot against your throat it's not it's not just the title it's also the actual image that is spoken in that very interior section of the work I guess, yeah, the connection is quite obvious in in the sense that it takes this image and extrapolates it. I mean, it doesn't extrapolate it. It it literally just takes that as the basis of the next work. Yeah. Thank you. I'm just going to describe for listeners what they would encounter if they were standing in front of your work. So the spaces between us can stay soft, features the image of a sneaker-clad foot on a curved video screen that's placed on the floor and it shows the foot resting very lightly or appears to me lightly upon the neck of a prone body accompanied by a whispered sound component again from the parabolic speaker above that describes visceral atmospheres and conditions including pressure tension heat the idea of fruit spoiling and also trance music at only one minute and i think 25 seconds duration it is a really intense work and evokes for me power and vulnerability, complicity and control. As we're discussing it, it might be helpful now for listeners to be able to hear the audio file. We'll just play that now. Does the foot need stability? Does it need protection? How will you ever know what's underneath or how hard you're pressing? It's become so hard. And the air so dense. It's hardly any time to eat before the fruit spoils, let alone take a breath. No wonder nothing comes through clearly anymore. The most we can hope for in this climate is for things to fall apart. 
foam and concrete crumble, but plastic is forever. A surface to hold everything that could be. I don't expect you to really see me through this iridescent mist. It's part of distance's design. We keep pressing. Hum 15 trans anthems. And try to remember every promise kept and unkept. Akil, amongst your research influences, you draw upon the use of ASMR roleplay videos in online spaces. And for listeners not familiar with the term, it refers to the sensations sometimes referred to as a brain tingle that some people experience in response to certain sounds, feelings or descriptions. And these can include soft whispering, crinkling paper or a gentle touch. Could you share with us your interest in incorporating the forms and techniques of ASMR into your work? I guess thinking about ASMR or just even the voice performance generally, something that I employ across a lot of my work is this like very specific vocality, which it's not like strictly adherent to the conventions of ASMR in the sense that ASMR more typically uses like a whisper, whereas like the voice that I use sits more on like the threshold of the whisper and and the voice. So it is like this kind of unstable voice, I guess, like inherently like trying to maintain that register is creates this kind of instability vocally, which I think also kind of has this semantic instability or something. The addition of the foot on the throat creates this increased instability in the voice because it's already kind of in this fragile state. And, you know, we kind of played around a bit with the positioning of the foot and I guess the choreography of the pressure and how it interplays with the script. And yeah, I was very like lucky to have my friend Athena Thebus who was willing to indulge me in, in the, <laughs> and step on my throat. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you sense the trust between between you in that work, definitely. Yeah. It, and I think it is actually interesting. It's actually quite hard to visually register that. There's just like very like minute. I mean, I think it's also quite hard to... Um, I mean, you talked about the intensity of it. I think because of the intensity of it, it's like quite hard to actually place where the intensity comes from. And even to be honest, like it's taken me, I think I made that work about three years ago now. Um, I've found it like quite difficult as a work to talk about until even still now. I feel there's a palpable tension both in the relationships between the materials used as well as the visuals and sound component. Mm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the installation elements you've used as well as the audio technology and the way that this acts as an interface between the work and the audience in the gallery. The installation elements, they they function similarly in both works in the sense that there's not many opportunities that you have to make people watch videos in a very specific physical configuration. Like you can literally position their body depending on where you put the screen in relation to the sound. So that is like something that's very compelling to play with. In the core muscular dreams, you know, not a super unconventional hanging height, um, whereas in uh, certain spaces between us can stay soft. The screen is on the floor and you're kind of like looking down at me on the floor with the foot on my throat. So like in the audience is part of the intensity is like this position of complicity that the audience is put into through the positioning of the screen. There's like a pragmatic element to 
I don't think pragmatic is entirely accurate, but you kind of get what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's about like positioning the audience in relation to the screen. But then I guess like the way that those things are done, like they're not, they're done almost as like sculptural analogs of the things that are talked about in the text and talked about, I, I like the themes, I guess, that are kind of recurrent within the works. They're these objects that are um, under duress or under pressure. I mean, the development between the two of them is also reflective of actual means of being able to make things. So the work from 2016, I used proprietary technology, as you said, like a, like a photographic pole, which uses pressure to stand up. That pressure was used to crush the shoe underneath it and kind of create that analog to some of the imagery that was happening in the text. And then in um, So the Spaces Between Us Can Stay Soft, the functional elements of that were created using uh, simulations of jelly form. So I used like 3D software like that's used for making imagery, but I like I used that to simulate these kind of objects under duress. And then I use their geometry to then create molds and then cast concrete, use like hardware to make them functional to hold up screens. That's the sculptural component that the monitor is resting upon. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And that little um, concrete beam that's like leaning up against the, um, like in the corner behind the screen. And obviously the most important thing to speak to is the, the audio technology. The parabolic speakers are important, speaking to that first point that I made about the space of the gallery and being able to create a very specific relationship to people and space. And I guess like ASMR being this thing that's you know, really on the threshold of the voice, like in between these voices, but it's also like on the threshold of like audibility and coherence. And I guess like there's a very like technical need to use specific kinds of speakers to be able to create that feeling of intimacy. The parabolic speakers allow you to have a speaker a lot closer to an audience member. You don't have to, you know, deal with reverb and which like would result in the loss of coherence, but it also means that it completely reproduces the aesthetic space that exists within the work, which is this space of like very intense intimacy. Yeah. They're beautifully installed in the gallery. They really are. And you do have to really, you know, you're forced to listen very intently to try and decipher and and understand the work, which which I think really adds to the engagement with it. Could I also ask about the narrative in both the works, because it is obviously a key component of your work in the exhibition. Could you talk a little bit about your interest in narrative and what it allows you to do in your work? Just out of interest, the narration in So the Spaces Between Us Can Remain Soft, is that a narration that you have written yourself or does it is any of it found text? Yeah, so the first line in that is found text. The first line is actually from, it's from a video of a talk by a Nike shoe designer and he's talking about the Nike Freeze, which I actually don't know if they make so much anymore. It's not really like a, a technology that they market very heavily, but yeah, I guess in the 2000s to five years ago, it was like a you know big part of their marketing. Yeah, so that line, does the foot need stability? Does it need protection? Because, I mean, it obviously relates to the shoes and the cushioning of the shoe that's actually in there is a very heavily cushioned shoe. Like the Air Max is a very cushioned shoe as opposed to the free, the Nike free with their, like the design is that it's supposed to be like a more natural sensation by removing cushioning. So I I guess that was a, a starting point. But yeah, the rest of it is written by me. 
That's not actually true. The reference to iridescent mist is a term that's like lifted from this book called Capitalism by um, Sayak Valencia. And contextually, it's very related to the topic of the book. It's very related to some of the stuff that I was talking about before, but I, I, won't, I won't get into that too much. The, the term iridescent mist in that is like referring to the observation of violence through a television, through a screen. That's, that's kind of talking to this I guess like violence of like misidentification or violence of misrepresentation or something. I would maybe contend with you that I actually don't know that narrative is so important in the works necessarily, but narrative is definitely important broadly within my practice. I think Muscular Dreams maybe as a work is somewhat of an outlier because it it actually directly lifts a narrative from a source. So that is very heavily narratively based. But I think so the spaces between us can say soft is probably more indicative of the way that I use storytelling, but maybe not narrative. I mean, I'm curious to know what you how you mean narrative, but um, I guess in my mind I'm I'm thinking about particular arcs and structures when I think of the term narrative. I guess within this, I was thinking narrative, yes, relates far more to muscular dreams and in so the spaces. Between Us Can Remain Soft, it's a more poetic first-person voice that we're hearing rather than a, than a narrative. And, yeah, so I had this, yeah, when, when I read your question, I thought of this very funny thing that someone um, said to me, like, uh, once in a studio visit. They were thinking of things that, like, to, just to refer me to, that, like, re- like, reminded, that my work reminded them of. And they couldn't remember it. And then they like came back to me like an hour later and they're like, oh, I remember what this thing was. It was like, and I thought it was like a very high compliment, um, which is maybe why I reproduced the story. Um, They said, I was, they were like, oh, your work really reminds me of Ballard. Like JG Ballard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I'd, admittedly, I'd never read any Ballard, but I, I guess like I understood the, you know, the spectre of Ballard in literature. But since then, I was like, I feel like now that that's happened, maybe I have to try and find some books. The only interaction that I'd had with Ballard is I've just I'd been trying to find a version, like a copy of the film Crash, for a number of years, which I've since found and I've since read two of his books. The thing that she actually said about the relation to Ballard is like, she's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot like Ballard. It's like um, nothing really happens. And I was like, that was like one of the most um, astute observations that I'd heard. And it was like, I, it was just, it was incredibly funny as well. With, within the transcript of So the Spaces Between Us Can Stay Soft, the second stanza, it's become so hot and the air so dense There's hardly any time to eat before the fruit spoils, let alone take a breath. No wonder nothing comes through clearly anymore. I mean, I can certainly see that in relation to Ballard and um, in his work, which by some academics has been revisited and looked at in terms of becoming part of the climate change or cli-fi genre of um, speculative fiction. You know, he does create these very atmospheric spaces. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I guess like the other thing that I was thinking about, like the, the books that I did manage to track down were um high rise and yes. um, yeah, like this just intense, yeah. intense violence. Yeah. And I don't know, just like the smallness of the world. And I think that yeah, I guess something that I tend to 
do a lot in my work is it's actually like a very small world with this really intense effect. Yeah, there's like gestures to something outside, but you can't actually grasp it. That's really interesting. I'm thinking now about the pressure and the tension in your work as well in relation to Ballard. So thank you for introducing that. Well, lastly, to finish up, I just wanted to ask you a little about the title of the exhibition, Language is a River. It is such an evocative title, and I wonder if you could reflect on what this conjures for you and also what potential space it might open up for visitors. I guess I think about language as this, like the, the way that I tell stories is like not so much about narrative, but it's about, yeah, like really intense affect. And I, I talked about in, in Service Spaces Between Us Can Stay Soft, it being actually like very hard to attribute what the source of that intensity is, whether it's the, you know, what you're looking at, what you're hearing, the quality of the sound. I guess that feeling for me is very important. It's just like, and the, that's what the language in that is just like this just kind of creates this massive wash of affect. And so you're kind of, the intensity kind of takes you adrift. And so I guess that's what I think about the title. It's about the effect that it can produce on the body and that just like washes over you. There's this line, I think, in Mel Ratliff's essay, which I think it quotes Spivak, talking about dissolving. It's like dissolving the boundaries. I think that that's also something that I feel is like so important about the capacity of uh, languages. It's the language um, and the feeling washes over you and dissolves that self. The boundaries between the self and other are dissolved. Yeah, and in that space of kind of dissociation and effect, you can kind of come together in, in completely different ways. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Akhil. It's been great talking to you and thank you i really enjoyed encountering your works within the exhibition yeah thank you we close this episode with ellen van nerven reading their poem the only black queer in the world four of van nerven's powerful poems including this one are the first words you encounter in the publication accompanying language is a river the only black queer in the world is from van nerven's collection throat published by University of Queensland Press in 2020. Hello, my name is Ellen Van Nieuwen and I'm on Yagara and Trobel land. I'm going to be reading The Only Black Queer in the World, which appears in my collection Throat, which came out in 2020 through University of Queensland Press. The Only Black Queer in the World. I was the only black queer in the world. I had many difficulties. I didn't know how to tell my family. I hadn't seen Stephen Oliver, can't even, on black comedy yet. We hadn't watched it together over dinner. TV didn't save me. I hadn't seen Electric Fields perform in a sweaty old meat market with a group of friends who had similar feelings. I hadn't yet read Lisa Blair and cried sitting on the carpet in the library over sharply written work that spoke to me and my experiences. I started a blog. I got many comments. People were always asking me what it was like to be black and queer. I hadn't yet started thinking about gender as a colonial construct. 
or examine my ideas of masculinity and femininity. I hadn't yet realized my relationship was interracial. I started another blog, Thoughts of Interracial Queer Relationships Featured. I hadn't got a crush on KMT yet and listened to a track that samples cold chisel or your cruel attitude lasts forever. I wondered if my parents would ever accept my future partners, if I'd ever have the chance to legalize my relationship, have children, ask for more, not for less. Some nights were really lonely, and I created Kathy Freeman as a lesbian and Prince as an Aboriginal. I got trolled, deleted my social media accounts, and the only known evidence of black queer existence was destroyed. I hadn't yet seen the doco on Uncle Jack Charles and met black queer elders who knew of a previous time Australians had to vote on the rights of a group of people. These elders knew what it was like to hear their rights discussed by people outside of their group. I hadn't yet worn my flag singlet, tucked it inside my Kelvin Kleins as a gammon fashion statement. I hadn't yet been to Mardi Gras. At Mardi Gras, I saw the white gays and the white gays I was used to, and then I saw black queers everywhere, and every conversation was an insight into a black queer past, the street becoming a site of multi-time, past, present, beat, the future, love, and 40 years of black queer pride spread into more than 60,000 years of we have always been here. My dance joined a big dance. I saw a Raradri Yoda Yoda lesbian couple who'd been marching since the beginning, who chanted, Stop police attacks on gays, women, and blacks in 1978, and they told me off for knowing fuck all. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem, and I'm learning the words. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem, and I'm learning the words. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem, and I'm learning the words. I saw the flag sparkle. I saw gays from everywhere, from Maury to Perth. I saw a black Captain Cook, Malcolm Cook, in 1988, the year of the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander float. That float should have been the first float that year, but Mob didn't open the parade until 2005 when Arnie Karen Cook and Arnie Lily Shearer walked out each with a coolerman of curling leaves smoking the parade. The small leaf fire was started on the corner of Liverpool and Elizabeth Streets, and in parade time, it never stopped. I thought properly about what it meant to be marching on stolen land, and that Roger McKay in 1982, when he carried the flag in the march made the point that the Sydney Gay's Golden Mile was the unceded land of the people of the Aura Nation. It was our modes of community and belonging white queers paved, and this influenced how they made their scenes. I woke up in, onto a mattress in a queer share house with a text from the other black queer asking to go on a date. I consumed black queer art and I created it. I saw Parkinji. Bakunji artist Raymond Zeta's work at the Art Gallery of South Australia and cried. I felt the heavy loss for all the ones killed, murdered, missing, or the erasure of black queers in every capital, small city and town in Australia. And I told myself I was lucky to have stayed alive and counted the times I thought I'd die 
I began to know the stories of more and more and more and more and more black queers who had died. I knew them as ancestors. I read Natalie Harkins, Yvette Holtz, Nayuka Gorries, and Alison Whitaker's writing online and in bookstores. I saw love for black queers everywhere. Outside the city, the sky sent me hints. The walk on country along the river kept me safe. I saw the colours of my own heart, and they were not the colours of isolation nor fear. Ellen's powerful poem concludes this episode of the Language is a River podcast. I'd like to thank our special guests, Akila Harmet and Ellen Van Nirven, for their participation. The second episode will feature Archie Barry and Pip Wallace in conversation together with Sarah Rodigari. You can find links and further information in the show notes on the MUMMA website, including a link to the Language as a River exhibition page and the publication, which can be purchased online via the MUMMA shop at monash.edu forward slash MUMMA. Thanks for listening. Thank you.